and I want to begin a conversation with you this morning, if we could, and I want to talk about what it means to be happy. And so what I want you to do is I want you to grab your Bibles and I want you to open them up this morning to Matthew 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the chairs. We'll do our best to put most of the scripture on the screens. But I'd encourage you to grab a Bible, have it in your hand, turn there. Bible's split into two parts, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Matthew, first book in the second part of your Bible, chapter 5. And then there's a note page in your program. Get a pen and uh, I think there's going to be some things worthwhile writing down this morning as we begin a series on what it means to be happy. Actually, this series is going to go for a while. We're going to spend about eight weeks talking about this. We're going to go right through Easter talking about what it means to be happy. You're saying, why in the world are you going to talk about what it means to be happy? Because our culture is obsessed with happiness. It's obsessed with being happy. When you think about it, we tell each other, happy new year, right? Happy birthday, right? We have happy hour. We have the happy dance, happy Gilmore, happy, 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 right? It's interesting. But when you really, really do the research and you really dig into it, you find out some interesting things about happiness in the U.S. They did a study. And this study showed that in 2017, that happiness in the United States is at an all-time low, all-time low. In fact, the United States of America does not even rank in the top 10 of the world's countries when it comes to happiness. As they went further in the research, they found out some interesting things when it comes to happiness. They found out that one-third, just over 30%, one-third, I'm going to say it again because this really struck me, one-third of Americans say they're happy. That means two-thirds of Americans say they are not happy. Only a third of those who live in the United States of America would say they're happy. That's interesting to me. So because I'm wired this way, here's what it causes me to do. I want to know where all the happy people live, right? Because you kind of want to live around the happy people. Can I get one amen in the room? You want to live around them, right? And so I dug a little further, right? I wanted to do a little research. And I want to know where the happiest people live in the United States of America, And I found out some interesting things when I found out the top five states in the United States of America when it comes to happiness. What do you think number one is? Just say it out loud, somebody. (laughs) Somebody said Ohio. Uh, Somebody said Florida. I heard that. You'll all be surprised. None of you is right. It's Minnesota. I don't know why in the world you'd be happy to live there, but they're happy there, all right? They're a little crazy too, maybe. I don't know, huh? Number two. Might be surprising, Utah, right? You're like, wow, that wasn't, none of you said that in the room. Number three makes sense to us, Hawaii, right? I want some of that happiness, right? But but it makes sense why those people are happy, right? And then you got number four, they're happy, right? In California, for a lot of different reasons, they're happy, right? That's a different sermon for a different time. And then the Cornhusker State is number five. Now look, you know what's missing? You know what's missing? Guess what's missing? Ohio, And so I've been here 10 years. I don't know if you've been keeping count. Some of you have been around a while. I've been a Buckeye for 10 years. I'm trying my best to be a Buckeye, all right? So I wanted to know, man, as a Buckeye, where do we rate in the happiness? Where in the world are we on the list? And I got discouraged because we're number 36. Yeah, I thought, man, oh, man. But, you know, here's what I learned, right? Look here, y'all going to be proud of me. You'll be proud of me because I learned one thing. The only thing that matters to a Buckeye doesn't matter where they're on the list, does it? Just matters if they're ahead of Michigan. And look what I found. Michigan, 29. We lose, right? That's a yeah, bummer, right? But, but here's the deal. We're obsessed with happiness. In fact, I found something interesting. You can try this. It's probably changed from what I'm going to show you. But if you get on Google and you begin to search how to be 
all of a sudden it begins to show you some of the most popular things that people are searching. And so if you just type in how to be H, the very first thing that comes up is how to be happy. And then how to be healthy, how to be humble. And then look at this, number four, how to be happy again. Number five, how to be happier. Number six, how to be happy alone. And then how to be hot. That's interesting, right? Because that might make you happy if you're hot. I don't know. And then how to be a happy single. And then how to be happy in life. We're obsessed with happiness. A lot of us aren't happy in the room, right? I did a little more research. You're like, man, you need a hobby, right? But I did a little more research, and I began to research, well, what is it that makes people feel happy? And when you really dig into this a little bit, it boils down to three things. Literally, it boils down to three things. I realize not for everybody. There's always the exception, right? But as they did research on this and as they did studies, it boils down to three things that make people feel happy. Sex, stuff, and sports. That's what it boiled down to. People want it more and better sex. That makes me happy. People want it more and better stuff. That makes me happy. And people just want their sports team to win. And when you think about it, wow, you get it. You know, you understand that, right? And I don't know if you've done this, but if you begin to just think, what is it that, that makes me feel happy? If you begin to think in your life, when do I feel happy? Like I feel really, really happy when I have a nice juicy steak in front of me. I feel really, really happy when I'm doing something fun with my family. I feel really happy when my sports team beats another team three times in a row in the same season. I feel really happy about stuff like that, right? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, talk to me later, right? I feel really happy that I have no squirrels in my house like Pastor Aiden, right? I feel really, 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 really happy that Pastor Christian did not preach in running tights last week. I feel really happy about that, right? There's all kinds of different things that make us feel happy. In fact, some of you in the room, you can't remember the last time you felt happy. And so you don't even know what it means to be happy. And you're not even sure what it means for you to feel happy because it's been so long since you felt happy. You see, that's what we're going to talk about, happiness. And it might surprise you, this might surprise you, that Jesus' very first recorded sermon revolved around the idea of happiness. That's interesting. You see, we all want to be happy. If you're in the room and you don't want to be happy, we probably ought to do some, some counseling later, right? We all want to be happy. And the very first sermon they recorded of Jesus revolved around this idea of happiness. It's found in Matthew 5. Now, before you look at Matthew 5, I have this deep passion. I have this deep passion for this book that many of you are holding in your lap. I have a deep passion for you to read this thing in color. I want it to come alive to you. And so we can't just drop into the sermon in Matthew 5. I mean, that happens all the time, right? We drop in, drop out. But I want you to understand how this sermon kind of plays out in the context of the whole book. So if you have this book in your hand, you would call it a Bible. I would call it the record of God's story. This is the record of God's story. It's split into two parts. There's an old part and a new part, Old Testament, New Testament. God's story starts with a guy named Adam. Adam was told to rule and subdue the earth. Let's say it this way. Adam, for all intents and purposes, was the first king. He was told to rule and subdue the earth and to fill the earth. I want you to multiply and fill the earth, God said. Adam lived in a beautiful garden, had a beautiful wife, and Adam was met with a challenge and a test. The problem is this. Adam failed the test. Adam failed the test. And so therefore, the first part of the story of God is all about the generations of Adam. 
If you read the first part of your Bible, it's about the generations of Adam. And you'll read the stories of men and women that's full of lies and deceit and murder and killing and adultery. Listen, listen, listen. And that's the good guys. Like that's the good guys in the story. And so it's no wonder in this story of God that when you get to the end of the first part called the Old Testament, the very last verse of the last book of the last chapter of the old part of God's story ends with this word, curse. That somehow that part of the story ends with this idea of a curse. That's why I'm glad there's two parts to this story. Because 400 years pass and then all of a sudden there's this second part called the New Testament. And the New Testament is about God announcing and introducing a new king. It's about God introducing another Adam, the last Adam. His name is Jesus. And in this last Adam, this new king, Jesus, whereas the first Adam failed the test, this king passed the test. That's why the second part of the story of God, unlike the first part, ends very differently. When you go to the last book of the second part of God's story, look at what it says. No longer will there be any, you say it out loud, curse. I love that. And so when you get to Matthew, I want this to make sense. It is the first book of the second part of God's story. It's often called a gospel. You're like, what is that? It's just good news about Jesus. And so Matthew, when he begins to write his book, is introducing this new king that God has sent into the world. And this new king, his name is Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 1, he announces his birth. The king is born. Matthew 2 and 3, he just simply announced, prepare the way for Jesus. In Matthew 2 through 3, we see Satan trying to dethrone Jesus. And when you get to Matthew 4, Jesus now, grown up 30 years old, begins to preach and teach. And his message is unbelievably simple. He simply says this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And what's fascinating to me, guys, is the people that responded to that message. It's not who you think. Some blue-collar fishermen signed up and said, we're in. Not just blue-collar fishermen, but look at what it says in verse 23. He went throughout Galilee. He's teaching in in the synagogues, in their church spaces, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about Jesus, this new king spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those who suffered severe pain. Those who were demon possessed. Those having seizures and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, all across the region, across the Jordan, followed this new king, Jesus. It's fascinating. All of a sudden, Jesus is drawing a crowd, but it's not who you think because he's drawing in his crowd the poor, the sick, the crazy, the messed up, the marginalized. The new king has come and he's gathering his crowd. And it's those that were marginalized in the Roman culture. If you're looking in from the outside and this new king comes, you're like, dude, if you're going to start a kingdom, you might want a different group of people. 
You need a different group of people to get this kingdom going. Maybe not the sick, maybe not the poor, maybe not the marginalized. Maybe you need the influential, the rich, and the powerful. But instead, Jesus picks the marginalized, picks the vulnerable. And it's to that group that he begins preaching a sermon that begins to set the pace for his entire kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. If you're reading from your Bible, it says this. Jesus saw the crowds, so he went up into a mountainside and sat down. That's kind of the way they did it, right? He sat down to teach them. His disciples then came to him, and he began to teach them. And look up at the screen with me. He said, everybody say the word underlined out loud. One, two, three. Blessed. Blessed. You see, what's interesting is I heard a few little places where they said, blessed, blessed. Right? Because some of you grew up saying it that way, right? You grew up in church if you grew up saying I don't know why we say it that way. We don't do it any other time that way. But the word is blessed. If you want to say blessed, that's fine. But it's a fascinating word. Because you're like, Dan, I thought we were talking about happiness, and we are. I thought you were talking about what it means to be happy, and we are. But that word is blessed. And that word Jesus will use nine times. If you take notes, it's worth writing down nine times in these first 12 verses. Nine times he says, blessed, 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 blessed. And why that's interesting to me is this, is because this part of God's story was written in a language called Greek. And that word blessed comes from the word makarios. You can forget that, but here's what it means. You ready? Happy or blissful. It means to be happy and find favor with God. It means to be blissful or happy because everything's right between me and God. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus wants to tell them, here's how you can be happy. Here's what it really means. Here's how you you define happiness. And here's how you discover happiness. It comes from a word makar. You can forget that word. But here's what that word makar means. It means to be happy regardless of what's going on around you. Jesus' sermon that he's preaching is simply this. He's talking to this crowd. They're marginalized. They're hungry for happiness. Things aren't going their way. They're not the people who are getting ahead. They're not the people who are showing up in the front of the magazine. These are the people that are forgotten. And he begins to preach this message to them. And he said, I want to tell you how you can have this deep, inner contentment and joy and peace and satisfaction, this happiness. It sounds like it might be a relevant message for a country where only one-third of the people say they're happy. So Jesus goes on to preach the message. And I don't know if you've ever sat in a message where it's like, wow, that's totally opposite of what I thought might be coming. Because Jesus said, happy or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. And all of a sudden you begin thinking, I came to the wrong sermon. (laughs) Because they're the ones that will be comforted. Happy or blessed are the meek. They're the ones that will inherit the earth. Not according to the news. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They're the ones who are going to be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Everything Jesus says at this point, almost everything he says seems counterintuitive to what we think of happiness. It's like you read this, you hear this sermon, and you're like, what? And yet Jesus wants us to know something for the next several weeks. I want you to get this. He wants us to know that happiness is something that if you and I are ever going to experience it and know it, we got to rethink it, we got to redefine it, and we got to rediscover it. We got to rethink it, we got to redefine it, and we got to rediscover it. And he literally takes us through a step of what it means to be happy. This morning, you know, all I want to do is take the first one. That's all I want to do. Here's what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can we read it this way? Think about this. He's saying this. He's saying, happy are the poor. Let us think in a minute. Happy are the poor. Now, some of you are saying, Well, if that's what he's saying, happy are the poor, and you're thinking dollars and cents, some of you are thinking, well, then I should be ecstatic, right? Because I'm not that well off, right? Some of you are thinking that. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't say happy are the poor, period. He says happy or blessed are the poor in spirit. That somehow Jesus is talking about something more than just dollars and cents. He's talking about something more than the bottom line. You already, if if, if you think about this, know that's the case. You already know that. You're saying, how do we know that? Well, let's think about that. Obviously, he's talking about something more than finances. He's got to be. Because if all he's talking about is financially happy are those who are poor, then can I just tell you something? We need to stop giving money to the poor. You're like, why? Because we're stealing their blessing. (laughs) what we're doing, right? So we ought to stop. In fact, we ought to go get rid of everything we have. Why? So we can get a blessing. So we can be happy, Right? And if he's just talking about the financially poor, I have some really bad news for you. Pastor Adam taught us this a couple weeks ago. That means those of us who live in America, we're out. Because we are richer than most of the world. Obviously, he's not talking about just financially poor, is he? He's talking to people who are financially poor. He's talking to people who are marginalized. And I think it it is a message that was more palatable to them because they understood what it meant to be poor financially. That's why when when Jesus said this, he said it's harder for a rich guy to get into the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It makes sense to me because I think Jesus' message makes sense to people who who literally have nothing and they need help. But he's, he's talking about those who are poor in spirit. And what's interesting, as you look at that, Jesus could have used one of two words for poor. I want you to know this stuff because it's fascinating. He could have used, first and foremost, the word penance. What that word meant was the working poor. That's people who worked their fingers to the bone and made very little. That's people who would say, man, I'm just getting by. I'm paycheck to paycheck. But that's not the word Jesus chose. That's not the word he chose. Instead, he chose this word, tokus. And that's the begging poor. That's the poor that I saw in Argentina. 
That's the poor who live in the shadows and literally reach their hand out in the middle of the shadows and they're pleading that somebody would pass their way and have mercy on them. Because whether they're crippled, they're blind, something, they have no way in which to make money to sustain themselves. And so they need the mercy of other people just to live. And Jesus purposefully chose that word. Why? Because he wants you and I to know something. I know this isn't like a feel good right away message. I get it. He wants us to know happiness. Happiness begins in those who realize they are spiritual beggars. Spiritual beggars in need of mercy. Why? Look back at verse 3. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only, here's the way he's saying this, only spiritual beggars have the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because only people who spiritually beg have Jesus as their king. And only with Jesus as your king can you enter the kingdom of heaven, can you experience the kingdom of heaven, and can you expect the kingdom of heaven. But the only people that that have Jesus as their king are people who acknowledge and recognize they are spiritually beggars. That's interesting to me. You see, Jesus says that's where happiness begins, that's where happiness continues, and that's where happiness will be forever. What's the point of what he's saying? I want you to write two things down and we'll be done. First is this. I think Jesus is saying that happiness starts when I admit my spiritual debt. Happiness starts when I admit my spiritual debt. Here's what I know in this room. Okay, let's, let's just be really honest and let's just say what we know to be true. There are two, two kinds of people in this room right now. Because there's been two kinds of people in church for hundreds of years. Okay? So there are two kinds of people sitting here right now. You identify yourself. There are, and, and, and be real with yourself, be honest. There are people who think they are spiritually rich in and of themselves. They think they got it going on. I'm really a good person. I'm a charter member of the church. I've been in Awanas. I have this. I did this. I don't do this. I'm all about this. People who, who, who have this incredible spiritual resume and they are spiritually rich in their own eyes. And then there are people who know they are spiritual beggars. There are people who think they're spiritually rich and there are people who know they are spiritual beggars. You're saying, Dan, how do you know those kind of people have been church in church for hundreds of years because Jesus told a story about them in Luke 18. It's fascinating. He told this story and he told it to some people who had great confidence in their own righteousness. And so therefore they looked down on everyone else. Two men went to church to pray. They're going to church to pray. One was a Pharisee. He was a really religious dude. Really religious guy. The other was a despised tax collector. He was looked down upon because he's a cheat. He had connected his life with the Romans. They go to church to pray. And the Pharisee, the really religious guy, stands off by himself. He separates himself from the rest of the crowd. And he prays this prayer. Put yourself in this church service. This is what he says. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Those are the people you like sitting beside in church, right? 
I'm not a cheater. I'm not a sinner. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. He isn't that, he's not done. Not only does he sit there and pray out loud, God, I'm thankful that I'm not a bad person and I'm really not like that dude, but I want to remind you of all the things that I do. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. This dude thought I'm spiritually rich and I want to remind you of that, God. But there's another guy and that's the tax collector. Guys, go here with me. He stood off by himself. He wouldn't even make eye contact. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he begins to beat his chest in sorrow. And he says, oh God, oh God. And he reaches his hands out. He's like, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Guys, look at what Jesus says. Don't miss this. Some of y'all been in church all your life. You need to see this. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee. I'm going to say it one more time. Let it sit. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, made right with God, Guys, these two dudes went to church and one thought he had it going on. One was a leader in the church. One had the resume. One wanted everybody to know. And what Jesus is saying is that dude who went to church, thought he had it going on, had the resume, went home from church without a relationship with God. I'm going to tell you something sobering, but you need to lean in. People do that every week. They go home from church without a relationship with God. They look the part. They seem to be spiritually rich. And Jesus is simply saying happiness begins by acknowledging and recognizing I am a spiritual beggar. You see, the problem is, the problem is we don't look at our life in a way that helps us see ourselves as a spiritual beggar. You're saying, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked. So I need a volunteer. Thanks, Mike. Come on up here, bud. I need a volunteer. Because a lot of times we look at our life like two schoolboys on the playground. Why don't you come over here? Who somehow want to one-up each other. And let's say Mike and I are two fellas on the playground or whatever the case may be. And we want to one-up each other. In regards to the amount of money we have. Hold up what you got, brother. This is my dentist, by the way, if you didn't know that. And hold up what you got. <laughs> I, yeah, he's got 10 pennies. What I got in this stack is a little over $200, right? You see, on the playground, as, I, as we were to live our life out in front of our peers, you guys would look at us. Hold yours up nice so they can see it. You would look at us and you would say, which one of us was rich? Me. Say it out loud, right? I got 200 and some dollars in there. You got 10 pennies is what you got, brother, right? And so as long as I look at you, you're like, wow, look at what he's got compared to what he's got. And as long as I'm looking this way, you're like, wow, he's got a lot more than he's got. In fact, beyond that, we begin to look at each other. 
And when we look at each other, I'm going to look at myself in comparison to him. I'm way further along than you are. Did you see what I got? Did you see how much I got? What do you got? As long as I look here, as long as I look here, I see myself as rich. But as long as I refuse to look back here and realize that both of us stand here, and if both of us owed the amount you see on the screen, which, by the way, is $10 trillion, $10 trillion. It's only when both Mike and I turn our back and we look at what we owe. Now you tell me which one of us is rich. Neither. You know what that number tells me? That number tells me that both of us are bankrupt. Both of us have no way in which we can pay that amount to cover that cost. You can go and have a seat. I want to tell you something this morning. I want you to listen. When it comes to our relationship with God, every last one of us in this room are spiritually bankrupt. Many of us in this room like to look at our spiritual life and we like to look at it this way. I go to church. I'm a good person. I help people. And we like to look at it this way. I'm better, at least I'm not one of those guys. Did you read about them in the paper? And my neighbor does this. And look at what I got. You will never be happy. You will never be happy when you're doing this and when you're doing this. It's only when you turn and see Jesus Christ on a cross that you realize I'm bankrupt. That he is paying a price that I could never earn that I could never achieve. And Jesus is saying, that's where happiness begins. That's where happiness begins. How in the world do I have that happiness? Well, Pastor Adam began to teach us that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says that our king, Jesus, you know his grace. Though he was rich, he's the king. Yet for your sake, he became poor. Listen, listen. The king emptied his account to pay my debt. The king, some of you have heard that too many times. It's too familiar to you. Let it break you this morning. Let it lean into you. The king, the one who had it all, emptied his account to pay my debt. So that I, through his poverty, might somehow become rich. You see, the fact of the matter is, is that I am a spiritual beggar. I am bankrupt. How in the world does he do that? What does that look like? Well, there's this obscure passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that's interesting to me. I want you to see it and I want to show you something. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Look here a second. You got to do the hard work with me. I want the Bible to make sense to you. That does not sound like good news, does it? I get twice what I deserve. That's what it feels like. I get double what I got coming to me for my sin. That sounds like bad news at first, unless you understand the culture in which that was written. Because the culture in which that was written, here's how this would have worked. If you were somebody who had accrued debt to the point where you needed to claim bankruptcy, You had accrued so much debt in your life. In that culture, here's what you would have done. You would have taken a piece of paper or parchment 
and you would have written out all of your debt, every last line. Not just that, you would have written out all of the reasons you were in that debt. You would have written out all the stupid decisions, all the sideways transactions that got you in that debt. You would have written it all out and you would have posted it on the doorway of your house so that everybody who walked by would look at you and say, look at the debt they're in. And you would just hope that a creditor would walk by and look at your debt and realize your need. And they would take that sheet off the door of that house and they would take it home. They would accrue the money, stay with me, to pay the debt times two. Times two. And then they would come back to your house, fold the paper in half, and nail it to the doorway of your house. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus walked by the doorway of your heart, and he sees all the debt, all the sin, all the guilt, all the stuff that no one else knows, all the the bad decisions, all the shame all the regrets. And he walks by the doorway of your house and when he died on the cross, he took your sheet and nailed it to the cross. Your debt has been paid in full times two because he didn't simply pay the debt you owed, but he paid so that you would have an inheritance you don't deserve. He paid the debt you owed, but he paid so that you would have an inheritance, so that in Christ we would have blessing, that happiness is found in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Look here a second. Anybody, don't raise your hand, don't say anything out loud, and don't look at anybody, okay? Anybody in this room ever notice that there's some Christians that aren't real happy? You ever notice that? Sometimes some of the grumpiest people I meet are people who say they're Christians. What happened? How in the world can, man, what are you talking about? Why is that? Here's the deal. Jesus would say it's because they don't know what it means to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit isn't just how I get saved. Poor in spirit is how I live and experience the happiness of being a Christian. I want you to write it this way. Happiness continues in my life and your life as I acknowledge my spiritual dependence on Jesus. Happiness continues as I acknowledge my spiritual dependence on Jesus. I'm gonna tell you something, and some of you need to hear this. The minute I begin to think that the Christian life is all about my effort, the things that I do, the rules that I keep, the the things that I do better than the other people around me, I forfeit happiness. I forfeit happiness the minute I think it's all about me. Here's why. Because that, that moment, ready? I begin to think spiritually I'm independently wealthy. And the minute I begin to think I'm independently wealthy, I forfeit happiness. You're saying, Dan, what in the world? You're saying, can that happen? Ken, can I show you one of the most sobering 
parts of God's story in the Bible. Jesus was writing to a church in Revelation chapter 3. And he said, these are the words of amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And he said, I know your deeds. He's talking to a church. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. He's saying, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot. I am about, this is Jesus talking. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. In the top five things I hope Jesus never says to me, I hope that's one that he never says. Well, why are we lukewarm? Well, here's why. Because you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. You don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, that you're naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Listen, is he talking about these people running around literally blind and naked? No, he's saying spiritually you're blind and naked. What was it that made this church lukewarm? Listen, listen, listen. They were trying to do Christianity without Jesus. And that's why for some of you in the room, all the happiness is gone in your walk with Jesus because you're trying to do Christianity without Christ. You're saying, Dan, can you do that? You bet your boots you can. Jesus is writing to a church. And look at what he says. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. This is Jesus talking. One of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. He's writing to a church. And he's saying, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door to the church, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Wow. They're doing church without Jesus. These are people who are Christians doing the Christian life without Jesus. And Jesus is clear to say that the minute I forget that I'm poor in spirit, that I need him that he bought my blessing, that he bought my inheritance, the moment I start doing this thing independent of him, I forfeit blessing and happiness in my life. Do you remember the, the, the story Christian, Pastor Christian told us last week? And it illustrates this perfectly. Illustrates it perfectly. Two boys, one dad. The younger brother comes to his dad and says, give me all that I have coming to me. I want my inheritance Now. Kind of a cocky dude, right? Takes the money and runs and spends it, lives it up, gets to the end of his resources, spends it all partying, friends, all kinds of stuff. He gets to the very end of it and he has no friends, no resources. Finds himself in a pig pen, despicable for a Jew, despicable for a Jew. And the Bible says he came to his senses. He recognized, I'm a beggar. I got nothing. The only thing I got is to go back to my dad and say, please, if you don't help me, I'm dead. If you don't come to my aid, I'm dead. And it's the minute that he recognized his spiritual bankruptcy, his bankruptcy that all of a sudden he received a happiness from the father that far exceeded his expectation. Put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger. He, he, he literally put a meal out for him and had a celebration and a party. But there was another brother. 
don't forget the other brother. Because he's working hard. He didn't leave. And he's mad when he hears the party. He said, what's going on? Brother's back. You're kidding me. And that older brother would not go in to the happiness of the moment. That older brother stood outside the happiness of the moment such that the father, the father went out to that brother just like he did the other brother. And he said, I want you to come and I want you to enjoy and experience the happiness of being with me. And that brother said, no. Do you know everything I've done? All that I deserve and you didn't and you won't. And the father says something. Don't miss this. He said, you seem to be missing the point. You think you are independently wealthy. But everything I have is yours because you're my son. You're not independently wealthy. You see, I look at this room. And I've been praying all morning for you. Because some of you would say, I'm a Christian, Dan. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a churchgoer. But you're trying to do this without Jesus. You're trying to somehow do Christianity without Christ. And so somehow this message of happiness, this message of blessing and deep satisfaction and contentment is missing from your life. You're trying to have a Christian marriage without Jesus. You're trying to have a Christian family without Jesus. You're trying to live the Christian life without Jesus. And this morning, do you know what? Jesus is knocking on the door of his church. And he might be knocking on the door of your heart this morning. You see, I don't know where you're at this morning, but as Aiden and the band come out and set up, and I'm going to ask you not to put your stuff away. I'm going to ask you, though, to do what I did all week. This message, for some reason, leaned into me in a most unusual way. Because I want to see your eyes for a second. You're my friends. I'm pretty good at doing Christianity without Jesus. That surprise you? And some of you are too. In fact, the thing that scares me the most as a pastor is that we can build a big church, a successful church, an active church, a good church, and we can do it without Jesus. It happens all the time. And never experience what it is that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. You might be asking, well, Dan, how in the world do I know that I'm trying to be a Christian and live this life without Jesus? In a minute, we're going to sing a song, and some of you can sing with us, and some of you can just sit there in your seat and pray. You can kneel at your chair and pray if you want. My prayer is that you'll use this song somehow to say, okay, God, do I see myself as a poor beggar? Or do I see myself as spiritually rich? Because Jesus says this, is that unless you and I are poor in spirit, we can't enter, we can't experience, and we can't expect the kingdom of God. Some of you are like, how in the world 
would I even know if I'm trying to be a Christian without Jesus? Let me give you some ideas on how that might show up in your life. The truth is, you might be trying to be a Christian without Jesus if you're more concerned about what you know than who you know. You like to tell people all the things you know about the Bible. Somehow you've forgotten the one that you know, the one who paid your debt. You might be trying to do Christianity without Jesus if you're more interested in people knowing what you've done instead of what he did. You might be trying to do Christianity without Jesus. You might see yourself as spiritually rich if somehow time with your king is way, way down on the priority list. You might be trying to do Christianity without Jesus if somehow you've forgotten the blessings of the cross somewhere along the way you begin to think that God owes you because I've worked hard done this, done that just like the older brother you might be trying to do Christianity without Jesus if you're stingy with his grace see Jesus says this it's the only way for us to enter the kingdom and experience the kingdom The only way for us to enter the happiness of the king and experience the happiness of the king is to get in a posture where we stick our hands out and we say, God, I am a poor spiritual beggar. And unless you fill my hands, I cannot live. I need you. The cool thing is, is that we got a king who walked that way. It says, I'm more than ready to fill the empty hands that extend themselves to me. So God, I pray all around this room. I pray for those in this room this morning who maybe have never said yes to Jesus, that this would be the morning. That this would be the morning they say, yes, Jesus, I have a debt I cannot pay, but I believe you paid it at the cross. And I would say yes to Jesus as the King and Savior of my life. God, I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters who have been doing this thing and and you're knocking at, at the door of their heart because they're busy, they're active, they know a lot, but they don't know you. They're not spending time with you. They're not enjoying the happiness of being in your presence. God, here's our prayer simply put this morning. We need you. We need you this morning.